Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. With the exception of one moment when I received a CD in the mail that I did not order, it was Elvis Presley's greatest hits, which I gleefully returned by writing literally, return to cinder. I thought I was so clever. With the exception of that moment, I have really no experience with the king. I don't. I was more of a Simon and Garfunkel kind of guy growing up, though I have a very special place in my heart for Hound Dog and Fools Rush In. What's funny when I think about Elvis is I'm more familiar with the catchphrase, Elvis has left the building, than I am with anything else. So this past week, I came across a bit of the history about why we laughingly say Elvis has left the building. I mean, really, do we care if Elvis left the building? Apparently, we did. At one of his concerts in Shreveport, Louisiana, in 1956, Elvis was appearing in a whole set of other musicians, and apparently... There was a problem because when he ended his set, the crowd wouldn't shut up. They wanted an encore. They wanted 15 encores. They would not settle down and allow the other acts to perform. And that's when a gentleman by the name of um, Logan, who was there that evening, gets up and says, all right, all right. Elvis has left the building. I've told you absolutely straight up to this point. You know that. He's left the building. He left the stage and went out the back with the policeman, and he's now gone from the building. In other words, settle down. Let's get on with the show. Now, we know, of course, that in time, this was used to get people to go home because when he was a headliner... There had to be some point where the encores and the demand for an encore would end and everybody could go home. Thus, the phrase, Elvis has left the building. Well, it just so happens that Jesus has left the building. But before he does... He's available to take one last question. Hmm. Let's take a time out, though, real fast, and and see how we got to this moment. Y'all remember Jesus, right? Jesus, for the last several years, has been sharing the good news of God's love, and for good reason. He's God's son. Jesus teaches. He preaches. He demonstrates that he has authority over demons. He heals. He touches. He befriends. He confronts. He loves. And then he dies. When Jesus is resurrected three days after dying as a criminal, he shakes his finger playfully to his followers and says, I told you so. And after 
revealing his resurrected self to his disciples and friends, he's now preparing to leave them. But he assures them that he's not going to leave them alone, that he's not going to leave them abandoned as, as orphans. He's going to make certain that the Holy Spirit descends upon them to stick around nearby until the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I can just imagine Jesus' followers huddled up together in this moment and trying to determine what last question they will throw at Jesus. Let's see. How about some basics, right? Let's, before you go, Jesus, let's clear up a few things. I can imagine them in the huddle going, you know what? We need to ask Jesus where he hid his memoirs. Where are those writings, right? Where did, where did he hide them? Wouldn't that have come in handily these last 20 centuries? Or how about that moment when Jesus was writing in the dirt? You, you remember the, the Pharisees that were trying to kill the woman caught in adultery? What was he writing? Let's ask him that question. Or perhaps the, the most helpful and economically sound question would be, hey, Jesus, can you teach us how to turn water into wine? Oh, come on, that was worth at least a chuckle, y'all. I mean, I know we're Baptists, but come on. Water into wine? How about theological questions, right? There are a few things that I would want to know. I mean, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Jesus. Hey, Jesus, could, could you talk a little bit more about what happened on the cross? Can you talk a little bit about substitutionary atonement? Or even better, say a little bit more about transubstantiation, about what happens literally to the bread and to the cup. And how about this? I mean, can we all be just honest for a second? Could you speak a little bit, Jesus, about sexuality and issues of life and death? We can see Jesus approaching the huddle like an umpire trying to break up a mound meeting. He's pointing at his watch. He's telling him to wrap it up. One last question. Come on. Let's hear it. And before anyone can agree on one last great question, someone blurts out, so when do we get to obliterate the Romans? <laughs> when do we get to obliterate the Romans? Come on, Jesus. That's what we really want to know. Ah, oh, yeah. When do we get to go to war and take Israel back from our enemies? I mean, that's, that's, that's the real question. I mean, if we're really honest, we look back at the disciples and, and see throughout a, a strain, a question of, of why they're really following this Jesus after all. I mean, why would you drop everything and follow him if not for some power. I mean, I'd like to be with the king, and if I'm with the king, that certainly must mean something good for me. Well, 
Lord, is this the time? Is this the moment? Is this the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? There are a few things that you need to know. In the Roman world and with the Romans, they didn't use the word Israel. You see, Rome had canceled Israel with their military conquests and, and might. So the question maybe is appropriate. Is this the moment that Jesus and his gang get to take it all back? I mean, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. We know this. So when does he get to make this place a Christian nation? When do we get the shock and awe moment when our side comes roaring back to take control? When do we get to become Christ's generals on his left and on his right? Before you get out of here, Jesus, come on. This is why we're in this. So this is the moment, right? You showed it all. You've come back from the dead. You are clothed with unimaginable power. This is it, right? Let's take it all back. Jesus' response is brilliant. Really? Really? That's your last question? <sighs> Guys, how many times do I have to tell you this? My Father alone decides just when these things will happen. It's none of your business. God will take care of that. Not you. Not me. I resisted the temptation of having all the world's power when the devil wanted me to bow down to him years ago. Y'all, nation-state politics is not your mission. Jesus is redirecting his disciples one last time. He waves them off of their obsession for control and then gives them a new promise and a new hope. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Did he say power? He said power, didn't he? He, he said power, but power, wait a second, Jesus, power to do what exactly? Power to be Christ's witnesses. The witnesses we know, especially in this context, was about a, a court of law. A witness is one who testifies. A witness tells others what they know firsthand. It's what they know to be true. A witness speaks from personal experience. It really is narrative. It's not a five-step plan. Even so, and especially with our baggage that we've brought to this moment with the word witness. It's hard, isn't it? It sounds so very intimidating. Our mission, according to Jesus, is to be his witnesses. Absolutely, it's hard. Which is precisely why Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to fill us, to give us the words, and to give us what we need to get up and get moving. I 
<laughs> if ever there was a group who needed redirection, it's us right now. I mean, what are we supposed to be doing right now? I mean, at, at this moment in time, and on this side of a global pandemic, what really are we supposed to be doing? As we know, the world is as dangerous, perverse, violent, and evil as it has ever been. So should we be like one of the groups during Jesus' age, the Essenes? They saw the world. They saw how the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were trying to work with the powers that be. But not the Essenes. What did they do? They removed themselves. They went and they lived in Qumran, down by the Dead Sea, off to themselves. They didn't want to be tainted by the world around them. This was taken up several centuries after Jesus ascended, where they believed that true followers of Jesus left the world and lived in isolation. That was the best way that they could be untainted. They could give their full attention to God. Is that, is that what we should be? Or perhaps it's trying to preserve what we've inherited by trying to perpetuate a way of being faithful that, if we're honest, was made for a time and a place that no longer exists. I mean, is that really what it looks like to pass the faith on to future generations to simply perpetuate what we were given? If you take a cue from the disciples here, maybe we should be charging into battle as Christian soldiers intent on making our country... A Christian nation. You know. Legislating orthodoxy and orthoproxy, that is, right belief and right actions, just like the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law did. And I need to let you know, of all the people that Jesus got really mad at, I mean really mad at, it wasn't the sinners. It wasn't even Rome. It was the religious authority and teachers of the law. But don't take my word for it, just look it up. Is that what we're supposed to be about? I mean, we want a Christian nation. Well, that's fine. Just tend to the sick and hurting. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked, love your enemies, wash one another's feet, serve others. Our mission is crystal clear. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus tells them, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Concentric circles of going out and of being engaged. You know, I wonder if Jesus hadn't have gone, it would have been difficult to do this, to take the show on the road, so to speak, because everybody would have been wanting to be just right there, wherever Jesus was all the time. His leaving actually liberates the people to go and do exactly what he has said. 
But like the disciples who heard this, we may be so dumbfounded by this mission to go global that all we can think about are three more familiar destinations. You know, like sanctuary, Sunday school classroom, mission and fellowship center. The disciples are frozen by Jesus' departure and what he has just told them. They're thunderstruck by these marching orders. And so what do they do? They can't help but to do exactly what we're doing. Staring up at the last place we saw Jesus. And not moving. As we learn, the Holy Spirit moves us beyond the thin place where we last encountered Christ. And it's not rocket science where the Spirit is leading us. It's out there. So I think we'd better arrange it so that we can travel light. We'd best imagine a new way to share and live Christ's truth as his witnesses. It means being our, our, our full, authentic selves, warts and all. God has arranged us in such a way that we have something to contribute to this mission. All our skills and gifts are unique and different. They overlap. They, they bump into one another. But in addition to that, we've been placed. All of you all have had to come from somewhere else to be on Main Street and Silva. I don't think that's an accident. This moment reminds me how we are called to go beyond belief and go make disciples. And that the place that we are right now is not our destination, it is a launching pad. It is the place where we begin the work of witnessing to what we've seen, what we know to be true. Doing this is going to require that we move we stretch our legs and our minds and get ready to be mobile. Because people, as we know, painfully, are not just going to show up as they once did. So much of what we're dealing with on the inside here and on the inside here is grief for loss of that which is no longer here. So much of it is misdirected grief. And just as it's true on this side of a death, of a tomb, of a grief, where God redeems the moment and gives a new expression, a new Caesar Easter, to a world that he loves and does not want to condemn, but wants to save through his very presence and sacrifice. That, I believe, is what's got to guide us going forward. We cannot just expect that people will show up on our mountaintop where we've built three tents or are 
standing in the place that Jesus just was, and now we've watched him ascend into the clouds. We cannot remain in those places and expect for others just to join us. And here's the best part. That's not what we're called to do. Jesus knows this. And he arranges the Holy Spirit to drive his followers away from the tomb and away from the mountaintop to the very ends of the earth. And thank God he did, because without their faithfulness, we would not be people of faith ourselves. Jesus ascended into the heavens to be with the Father. He's gone, y'all, to prepare a place for us. The Holy Spirit is our new advocate, and the Spirit is driving us out to encounter others. The only encore that we can expect is at the end of the age when Jesus comes again. Y'all, Jesus has left the building. Perhaps we should too. Let us pray. God, help us to see beyond ourselves so that we can recognize that we are a part of a mission to share your good news with others through our love, our hospitality, our kindness, our striving for justice, and that by living your good news, you change the world. Prepare us, God, to receive your Holy Spirit so that we might work through our grief and lean boldly to a future that is just plainly hard to ask for or to imagine. Get us in a position, God, to move. Because you, O oh God, are Lord of the dance. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.